Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, the response to coronavirus. Whether or not it officially reaches full pandemic status, the coronavirus is having a significant economic impact. From canceled flights and quarantined cruise ships to idled factories, how is China, the country that is hardest hit, using tax policy to cope with the outbreak? Joining me now by phone is Daisy Dai, an assistant law professor at the Shanghai University of Finance and Economics. Daisy is also a senior academic visitor with the University of Oxford Faculty of Law. She recently wrote about this topic for Tax Notes. Daisy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, David. It is great to be here. Why don't we start with an update on where things are with the virus as of the day we're recording this. It's currently February 26th. Things are moving kind of fast. But where are things now? So right now, for day, five new cases confirmed outside of Hubei province, and the 400 new cases confirmed in Hubei. And the aggregate number of confirmed cases in China is around 78,000, and more than 25,000 have been cured and discharged from hospitals. So it is kind of clear that most of the new cases in China happened in Hubei province. And since January 23rd, Hubei has been locked down to quarantine the coronavirus outbreak, and and we have seen some real decline in China due to the quarantine requirement. And Wuhan has a population of over 11 million, and it is referred as the Chicago of China because it is the capital and the largest city of Hubei, and it is the key role of domestic transport in central China. So this is kind of where we are now because the whole uh, Hubei province is locked down, and Wuhan cannot get to anywhere else in China. So we hope the quarantine will continue to be effective. And we have seen that to be very effective during the past month. So is it just the one region that's being quarantined or are there other measures being taken elsewhere in China? Uh, Actually, most places in China have been under quarantine during the past month. And as you as I'm living a very interesting time, Lunar New Year is considered the biggest time of a year for families to get together and celebrate. But this year, due to the outbreak, most places are locked down in China and I was actually traveling with my family in Europe during the Lunar New Year, and our return flight was canceled in Europe. So we had to reroute, and we went through Moscow, and then flew to Shanghai. And when we arrived in Shanghai, we had to stay home for 14 days, which is the quarantine requirement. And I think everyone in this country is making sacrifice to stop the spread of coronavirus. It becomes a very constrained way of living, for sure. And the message we got from the government is like, the best thing we could do at this moment for GDP is to stay home. So even today, a number of public places like grocery stores or coffee shops, they check visitors' temperature at the entrance. And as I personally experienced during the past two weeks, each household only got one ticket to go out for grocery shopping. So this is kind of how quarantine has taken place in most places in China. And the university I teach is still shut down. Students started online courses last week, but it is unsure when the school will start. Maybe in late March, but we don't know yet, kind of the situation that is going on. Is it sort of eerie? There's just no one outside these days? Well, I would say during the first week of February, the whole country was kind of empty because people were staying home. But it's getting much better now because the government sees the urgency to resume work. So most major transport traffic has been resumed during the past week. What sort of tax measures is the government using as it's trying to combat the outbreak? 
Right, and the government has taken several tax measures from a variety of angles to help combat the outbreak. For example, the first one might be all the medical workers who are fighting on the front line in Hubei. They will receive their triple, triple salaries for tax-free and their subsidies for tax-free. And after this coronavirus outbreak, they will get paid vacations. And the second one I would mention is the import of medicines, medical and other protective supplies, vehicles used in the combat is all tax-free. And the customers will process all these imports as a priority. And the third one might be donation tax deduction because before this particular regulatory response, individuals taxpayers or corporate taxpayers, they cannot deduct a full amount for donation, but this time they can claim a full tax deduction for cash and goods donated made in defeat the coronavirus. And it doesn't have to be donations made for Red Cross specifically. They can take full tax deductions for any donations made directly to the designated hospitals and other equivalent NGOs. And the companies who produce the key supplies for the prevention can take immediate deductions of all qualifying equipment costs. But without this particular regulatory response, they could only depreciate these key supplies over the use of life. And with all these manufacturers who are producing the key supplies and who are investing in R&D, they could take a super deduction, which is 75 deductions of qualified R&D expenses. And on top of that, those high-tech enterprises can still get 15% preferential corporate income tax rates. And I know the U.S. doesn't have CAT, but China imposed CAT. And in this time, taxpayers will be exempt from VAT and other taxes if the medical supplies or life costs they produce or purchase are donated towards defeating the coronavirus. And a lot of enterprises producing masks, they will get qualifying financial subsidies from government. And those financial subsidies are not subject to corporate income tax. And we would expect more coming up, but this is current to tax measures that the government has adopted to combat the outbreak. We'll get back to the interview in a moment, but first, here's tax analyst, president, and CEO, Kara Griffith, with a word on an upcoming event. Kara? Thanks, Dave. I'm excited to announce a major anniversary for Tax Analyst. It's our golden year as the organization turns 50. Tax Analyst has gone from humble beginnings to becoming a leading provider of tax information and a forum for even-handed debate. As part of our 50th anniversary, we will be hosting a gala dinner at the National Portrait Gallery on April 29th in Washington, D.C. We will honor former IRS commissioner and longtime leader in the tax world, Larry Gibbs, and discuss the future of tax policy with U.S. Treasury Assistant Secretary Dave Cotter. We hope you will join us in celebrating our first half century. To become a sponsor or purchase tickets, visit events.taxanalyst.org slash 50th anniversary. Now, you mentioned that the government had said something about staying home was the best thing you could do for GDP. What sort of economic effects is China experiencing from this outbreak and the quarantines? A significant number of factories, they had shut down during the coronavirus outbreak in the past month. And service sector in particular, they had suffered severe economic losses especially those small and medium-sized enterprises, they couldn't afford employees' wages and the rent at the same time that they had to remain shut down. For example, the King of Party, which is the most popular karaoke business in Beijing, they announced to terminate all employment contracts February 9th in response to the shutdown. And 
also the shutdown has impacted global supply chains. I read a survey recently that is done by the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai, and in the survey, they found 48% of companies report their global operations are already impacted by the shutdown. And these are American companies with manufacturing operations in the Shanghai region. So the shutdown has, I would say, a substantial impact on both not only global supply chains, but also in China's domestic SMEs. Right now, there are several obstacles to resume business. The first one might be the shortage of workers, because companies in major cities like Shanghai and Beijing, they rely on migrant workers to resume business. But these migrant workers, they are currently stuck in villages or other distant cities. So to respond, since February 16th, which is 10 days ago, the China State Railway Group, they have chartered hundreds of trains transporting the migrant workers to major cities, including Shanghai and Guangdong in the south and Zhejiang in the east coast. And the second one, I would, according to the survey and according to the Chinese business experience, it is the shortage of masks. And I think it is almost a global shortage right now for the supply of masks, which is, comes from my personal experience in Europe. And this morning, I was just chatting with my host family in Charlottesville. They told me the hospital in Charlottesville is in short supply of surgical masks. And according to the survey that is done by American Chamber of Commerce, 38% of companies said they do not have sufficient masks or other safety supplies to protect the workers. But local regulations in Shanghai require all these companies to provide masks to protect the workers. And a third issue might be the logistics issue, because the main traffic was shut down during the first and the second week of February. So people could not travel and they had to reopen the main traffic and they reopened the main traffic in mid-February to transport both the supplies and the workers. So during the next week, we will see the logistics become less of a concern. But right now, it is still a big concern for manufacturers. And the last one might be the increasing compliance work for the companies to resume business. Like in Shanghai and in Zhejiang province, they had to, all these companies, if they want to resume work, they must file several forms to obtain the local government's approval to reopen. And this approval requirement includes whether the companies have checked the recent travel record to see whether the workers have traveled to Hubei. And before last week, a lot of places do impose a 14-day quarantine requirement. But now, about eight provinces have lowered that quarantine requirement. So workers do not have to stay home for 14 days strict. What sort of tax measures is the government taking to mitigate the economic effects of this outbreak? So to mitigate the economic effects, as we have seen, there are substantial economic losses at this moment. And a lot of taxpayers, especially the companies, they couldn't start work, so they couldn't basically file the tax filing, which was supposed to be due on the, in the first week of February. So the monthly tax filing deadline is extended to the very end, the 28th. And the tax bureaus across the whole country are encouraged taxpayers to use the e-filing system and digital invoices. The purpose is to minimize any human-to-human contact, and which I think will be very helpful for the country to facilitate the use of all the online applications for tax filing purpose. And the second one might be the CAT exemption and the exemption from all the rest taxes, because the business in public transportation or in delivery and transportation for emergency supplies and other essential living services, they are right now 
now exempt from VAT. This exemption is supposed to last until May, and in Hubei province, it probably will extend the extension to July. But we don't know the definite date yet. And the business that are severely affected, they can carry forward all the losses occurred in 2020 for additional three years. It was used to be five years, and with this additional three years, it is eight years in total for them to carry forward the loss. And the fourth, the central government provides a lot of social security deferral payment and subsidies. Before this deferral and subsidies, the SMEs have occurred a lot of a huge economic loss because they have to pay the workers a substantial amount of social security payment on top of their salary. And the central government responded by deferring this payment and they also subsidized the SMEs with the social security payment. Do you expect any additional measures from the government in the relatively near future? Yes, very likely. Central government probably would announce more tax measures in March when the business is fully resumed. But at this point, only 70% have resumed work. And we also could expect more tax relief at the local government level because in China, the local government has a lot of discretion to give tax relief for business, especially for business that is encouraged by the local government. For example, in Shanghai, the Shanghai government is already subsidizing business rent and the workers' training program in using online apps. The business rent in places like Jing'an district or in Lujiazui, the financial district in Shanghai. It is very high. And as the government is subsidizing business rent, it's supposed to lower the company's burden in finance. And Shanghai also followed up with several preferential tax and financing treatments for the small and medium-sized enterprises. Like they would guarantee the credit skill and reduce the financing cost. The purpose is to actually to stabilize the SMEs operation. Otherwise, we might see more and more bankruptcy filings in this year. Daisy, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, David. It's my honor to be here today. I hope things go back to normal for you pretty soon. Thank you, David. I hope so, too. And I'm so sorry to see that there are more cases in South Korea, Japan, and Italy. And I hope the whole world will combat this coronavirus pretty soon. Now for another edition of Willis Ways In, where Tax Notes contributing editor Ben Willis discusses tax planning issues. Thanks, Dave. Today, we'll be discussing Rev Rule 2019-24 and the IRS's failure to properly address tax-free forks. The proposition that I want you to leave with today is that hard forks can, in fact, be tax-free. And the IRS, in this revenue ruling, left out critical facts that would be essential to making that determination. Those facts are largely based on value and whether or not there was a realization event. So let's go ahead and start off with value. In situation two of the revenue ruling, we have B that owns 50 units of crypto R. Now, because B owns 50 units of crypto R, they receive an additional 25 units of crypto S worth $50, which the IRS calls a taxable accession to wealth. I don't believe there's enough information to actually reach that conclusion. Now, let's say the 50 units of crypto were worth $500 in total, $10 a piece. And at the time of the hard fork, they decrease in value by a dollar to $9, such that crypto R in the hands of B is worth $450. And when they receive the additional $50 of the crypto S units, In total, they have the same value as before the hard fork. 
Because we're not given that information, we don't actually know if there was an increase in the value that they actually received or if this was more like a return of capital transaction or a simple division of property. So what is a principle that focuses on that? Well, that principle comes from Eisner v. McCumber, which a lot of people cite for the proposition of non-realization when property is separated. There, there was a stock split, and the U.S. Supreme Court specifically said the corporation is no poorer and the stockholder is no richer than they were before. So they own twice as many shares in the stock split, but each share was worth half what it previously was. So they had the same amount of value before and after. And the court concluded that there was no accession to wealth in that instance. Now, it's important to realize that Congress, within a year after that case, enacted the Revenue Act of 1921 and created some very important provisions with respect to cryptocurrency. They created the like-kind exchange rules currently found in 1031, which were used to allow for tax-free exchanges of cryptocurrency up till 2018, where the TCGA changed that. They also enacted current section 305 for stock splits, 351 and 368 on tax-free reorganizations. So there's a lot that really stems from this case about when you recognize income and you take that into account, or you've just modified something that you own. Now, the next point that I want to mention on top of value is realization. The Supreme Court gave some great clarification to the principles under Section 1001 when in cottage shavings they allowed a taxpayer to claim a loss when they exchanged mortgages. And the reason they allowed that loss was because the property had legally distinct entitlements that were different than previously held property. Now, we don't know if this cryptocurrency provides new legal entitlements. And so unless we know the value of crypto R, which we don't, and we know the legal entitlements provided by these cryptocurrencies, it's really impossible to say whether or not we have an accession of wealth that's taxable. One analogy to this, in addition to having a stock split, is just the separation of attractive land. You can subdivide land, but it's well recognized that you're not going to realize and recognize gain on that land until you sell those parcels. So with all that said, I want to reiterate my point that it is my view that cryptocurrencies can indeed be tax-free upon a hard fork, and unfortunately, the IRS failed to convey that in Rev Rule 2019-24. Thank you for reaching out with your questions and your comments. Always appreciate it. Please keep them coming. You can reach me at WillisWaysIn on Twitter or through my email at ben.willis at taxanalyst.org. Thanks. And now, coming attractions. Each week we preview commentary that will be appearing in the Tax Notes magazines. I'm joined by Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Charles Rosati argues that the IRS could shrink the tax gap by adding third-party reporting of unreported income. Tristan evans Willen explains why stock acquisitions can involve transaction tax deductions. In Tax Notes State, three practitioners from RSMUS discuss states' plans to enact an interstate compact on credits and incentives. Richard Cram discusses the 1944 sales tax decision of McLeod v. Dilworth. 
And in Tax Notes International, Jacob Boongard and Luis Fjord Kjersgaard discuss how the digitalization of the economy is affecting nexus rules. And Marco Rossi discusses a ruling by the Italian tax agency regarding the tax treatment of Brazilian interest on net equity payments. In the opinions page, Joe Thorndike writes that there are arguments for keeping some elements of the tax legislative process from constant democratic oversight. And Nana Amasarfo looks at Briticom, China's Belt and Road Initiative Tax Administration Cooperation Mechanism. You can read all that and a lot more in the March 2nd editions of Tax Notes Federal, State, and International. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.